Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This week on Red Inca, we talk about Argentinian cricket. Unluckily, two men have just written a book called Evita Burned Down Our Pavilion, and I got one of them on to chat about it. I'm James Coyne, and I'm the assistant editor of the Cricketer magazine. We discuss how good Argentina were at cricket when they were taking games off the MCC, why they were held back from test matches, kind of, and why the game didn't spread like rugby or football did in that country. We talk Avita, Plum Warner, Buenos Aires, and the new rivalry coming out of Brazil versus Argentina in women's cricket. James, I've got you on. If you could say the title of your book so that everyone can rush off, pause the podcast and go and buy it. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, Evita Burned Down Our Pavilion, a cricket odyssey through Latin America. And it's been written by uh, myself and a guy called Timothy Abraham, who I collaborate on on quite a few things. So, yeah, it was... Very much a labour of love for us and a bit of a gamble, but it's somehow got to market. So there you go. <laughs> We're going to talk about Argentinian cricket here because I really, really like the story of this. I didn't know much about it. The, the two that have surprised me the most of recent times have been Denmark were quite into cricket at one point and uh, mm. Argentina uh, was quite into cricket as well. Argentina? Argentina. I'm going to say 83 different <laughs> ways through this episode. People are just going to have to get used to that. But here's the very important thing, and we'll do very broad brushstrokes at the start, they mm. were once good at cricket, weren't they? They were actually genuinely good. Yeah, they were. And I think Roland Bowen, who wrote a great book on cricket history called um, Cricket, a History of Its Development Through the World, he wrote that at one time the possibility seemed to exist that we would one day see test matches against South America, but that possibility faded after the last war. And he meant the Second World <laughs> War, um, not the Vietnam War or anything. So, yeah, um, you know, they were, during the interwar period, they were probably the strongest of what would have been called the associate nations if they'd been allowed to exist. And that's part of the problem in that the ICC at the time was the Imperial Cricket Conference, not the International Cricket Council as it is now. And so in, if you weren't a Commonwealth country, you couldn't be a member of the ICC, despite the fact that there was a significant cricket playing population in Argentina at the time and throughout Latin America, but particularly Argentina. So they never really kicked on for various reasons. 
but they were probably the strongest of what we would now call the associate nations, yeah. So when I did my research on test cricket uh, teams, and I, I don't think I wrote much about them, but it looked like to me they were not far off the strength of New Zealand at that point. And had they had any sort of proper development, they would have quickly mm -hmm. gone past a team like New Zealand at that point. I mean, they had some local players coming through. We'll talk about that more yeah. in a bit. But they also had, you know, a very strong sort of English element. Their early cricket is very similar when you read the story of South Africa, really. Mm -hmm. You have these incredibly sort of posh English guys who play there, but they're actually really English, but they're serving yeah. there or they're doing the railway tracks or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The chapter that you sent through to me, you start it with the cricket club today, which mm -hmm. I've never been there. I've never been to South America, in fact, but I have been to cricket clubs in Hong Kong and I've been yeah. to posh cricket clubs in India and other places. It did feel very much like one of those colonial uh, drinking spots with G&T and people giggling and everyone there, you know, owns a, a huge house, a beautiful place to hang out as much as anything. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly historically that was the case. I mean, Belgrano, obviously, if anyone who listens to this podcast goes to, goes to Argentina, you have to go to Belgrano. It's an amazing place. It's in sort of a very plush suburb of Buenos Aires. And there's these huge tower blocks around the ground which you'd think would make it incredibly ugly. But in fact, it sort of gives some sort of bizarre, brutalist beauty to it. And you lie down in the, in the shade at the bottom of the, of the tower blocks and you think this is incredible. And funnily enough, when you say about Argentina being almost as strong as New Zealand, there was a New Zealand team that went to play at Belgrano in the 1970s. And one of the players, who was a test cricketer, John Morrison, actually almost collapsed and died because it was so hot because the, the heat was beaming off the tower blocks and then and, and he had to be resuscitated by a barman with a, a strong cocktail in the bar. Been there. But, but he said that the, the, the pitches at those times, and this was the 1970s, the pitches were better than they were in New Zealand. And that's one interesting thing about Argentina is that all through this period, and as you know, if you go to an associate nation, the chances are you're playing on an AstroTurf pitch. They've always insisted on playing on grass pitches. And while they aren't as good as they were, that gives you some indication that this was a seriously strong cricketing culture with an awful lot of time put into it. And as you say, these Brits were out there, you know, they were playing six months in England for a club team or for a county or whatever. And then they were going over and playing six months in Argentina for the Belgrano Athletic Club or the Hurlingham Club or for Argentina itself. So you had this sort of bizarre sort of uh, half existence for these guys that were making an awful lot of money, a lot of them in the railways or in utilities or in insurance and they built a strong cricketing culture. As you suggest, the main problem is that it didn't spread its wings enough to the locals. But uh, there was a time when it was quite heavily played by local people, but it just didn't kick on from that interwar period for, for a number of reasons. It's interesting when, when you talk about the pitches, because I think, you know, South Africa and Pakistan both started on matting pitches in, in Test yeah. Match cricket. So it gives you a real idea of just how seriously Argentina was, was taking cricket at that point, even if it was a small bunch of people. But one of the other things that you talked about was, and, and I, I talk about this a lot on this podcast because it comes up again and again, was that <laughs> India, England played that ODI where we had two sets of brothers go up against each other. Mm. Very much a family game in, in Argentina. Oh my God, why can't I say this word? Argentina. They used to call it the Argentine. The Brits would call it, oh, going out to the Argentine. That's what they I used read to that say. in the book. <laughs> and in my mind, because I, I was going to bring that up, and it was so yeah. much in my mind that now I can't say Argentina. <laughs> so it was a family game. So it was obviously it was English involved, but I would assume even when the locals got involved, it was passed down mm. the way that cricket kind of always is, is this kind of family mm. hello. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the most famous indication of that were the Ailings who played, uh, I think there were four of them in the San Isidro, 
team who played in sort of northern suburbs of Buenos Aires and three of the top ailing brothers played for Argentina at the same time and they were an exceptionally strong cricketing family and I think they could have played county cricket had they lived in England funnily enough one of them was involved with bank transfer machines and so Argentines would go into their local bank and there'd be the Cirilo ailing bank transfer machine and yet they had no idea that this guy had scored almost a century at Lord's so <laughs> it's quite extraordinary really but yes you're absolutely right I mean as time has gone on whether it's the Ninos or the Foresters or the or the Fennels, you know, it's very much a family game that's passed down because the nature of Argentine cricket has been, rightly or wrongly, has been pretty much in members clubs. So if your family members were part of that social club, they would take up the game. And as you say, it tends to happen in cricket where, you know, you have a passionate mother or father who absolutely is devoted to the game. And so you see through the sort of slightly difficult bits in cricket that other people might get bored and and walk away, you can be inculcated by your parents. So no doubt it's become perhaps the strongest example of a family game in the whole world, I would say. Let's go back to when they first played the MCC. It's such Mm. a fascinating time. Lord Hawke was involved, who did a lot of bad things in his life and in cricket, (laughs) but certainly was also involved in spreading the game, quite often for his own purposes, but he was still there. Yeah. So it was the first first-class game ever played in Latin America. Is that right? Oh, that's right, yeah. Not South America because of Guyana, obviously, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. so Guyana had had one, but but Latin America yeah. was the first first-class game. And mm. it was billed as a test match, which tells you that, and this is what, 1912, was it? No. 11-12, yeah. 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 So it shows you that at that point that the, the phrase test match was still being used by kind of any grifter with a cricket game to sell. <laughs> but yeah. the incredible thing is that it ended up being a brilliant game of cricket, that first match. And uh, who won again? Argentina won. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was extraordinary. And the, the captain who, again, you know, he was an Anglo a guy called Harold Garnett, who sadly died in the First World War. So he, you know, within a couple of years, he was gone. But he was a left-hander who played for Lancashire and he scored the winning runs. He was the captain of Argentina in that side. And yeah, Argentina won that game. And that must have been a massive shock to Lord Hawke because he'd taken a side with six test cricketers, whether they were going to be a future test cricketer or a past test cricketer. So, I mean, it was a seriously strong MCC side. And yeah, they got they got a beating in that first game. And, you know, it's an extraordinary time, really, that that 1911-12 series. I mean, there was was another guy playing for Argentina was a guy called Jorge Brown, who was one of the founders of football, uh, I think the founder of the Argentine Football Championship. So there was a real crossover at the time between footballers and cricketers. And that just shows how strong they were that they won that game. I think it was at Hurlingham, that first match, which is a wonderful place to go. Completely different from Belgrano. It's it's right in the outskirts of in the western suburbs of Buenos Aires. And at the time, it was just a village that sprung up around the sports club. So the sports club was there first, named after the Hurlingham Club on the banks of the Thames. And some guy bought a farm from someone and turned it into this sporting mecca where Winston Churchill played polo. And there's there were there were two cricket grounds originally, I think. There's this amazing clubhouse. And now it's sort of been subsumed into suburban Buenos Aires. But when you consider that the whole town of Hurlingham sprang up around this club that was primarily a cricket club, that tells you how important cricket was at the time. Yeah, that's incredible. And so they yeah. win that first game, but it's a three-match series, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So the MCC win the second game, and it comes down to really squeaky bum time in that third game. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, I think the MCC might have got home with two wickets to spare. Does that sound about right? I think they did, yeah. Well, Archie McLaren is a, another amazing character. So he begged to go on this tour. And he, he had all sorts of problems. You know, he had rheumatism, which actually the local drink mate, which they drink in Argentina, would have been perfect for to solve that. I don't know <laughs> if that's why he went. 
But he had all sorts of problems. You know, he was prone to letting his MCC membership lapse because he couldn't pay it, all sorts of things. So he begged to go on this tour. He actually put an advert out in one of the cricket magazines in England to go on this tour, even though him and Lord Hawke had fallen out over selection in, in Ashes series before. And he made four ducks in this series at the start of the series, having insisted to one of the other teammates to make him take room 13 in the, in the hotel because he thought it was unlucky. He still made four ducks. But he actually finally made some runs in that game at the end. And they, and they managed to sneak home and win that match. But yeah, interestingly, Archie McLaren said after that series that the two main bowlers for Argentina, a guy called Philip Foy and a guy called Herbert Dorning. Herbert Dorning was very much a sort of professional type from Lancashire and, and Philip Foy was, a, was more of an amateur type who'd settled in Argentina. He said that they would have been first choice for the gentlemen and the players in England had they been there. So that tells you how strong their bowling was at that time. Yeah, I suppose a lot of this is also climate. It's probably got a more similar climate to Australia or South Africa, and you probably could play cricket for longer. Pitches are a little bit harder and more reliable, all those sorts of things. So you can understand why, you know, those sorts of players, when they went out, they're the same that English, Irish and Scottish players did when they went out to uh, South Africa and Australia, probably uh, Mm. did very well when it came to that sort of thing. This period of time is basically when rugby and football is getting big Mm. there as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think at the time, during that first series, I mean, football had probably sprinted on by that point even then, but rugby was pretty much on a par in Argentina with cricket in terms of its sort of standing participation. I imagine there was probably slightly more rugby at that point, but an awful lot of clubs were sort of very linked at that time. And I think Lord Hawke commented at the end that even at that point, the Argentines preferred to play rugby. But if you consider that rugby in Argentina was very much a middle-class amateur sport till very late, till the 1990s, very similar situation to cricket, but it just seemed to probably catch on a bit quicker. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, I think. Uh, you know, the length of the game would be one, the fact that it's in the winter, not the summer, when a lot of Argentines like to go and do leisure activities in summer. But yeah, it's sort of almost a fascinating sort of sliding doors moment where you think if just something had happened at that time just to spark cricket up, it could have sprinted on at that point and they missed a bit of a trick there. But yeah, it's one of those sort of agonising what ifs. Why didn't cricket take off at that time? You do talk about Latin players playing the game, though, and Mm. Spanish speakers, I suppose, is the most important phrase there, isn't it? Playing the game. So they were playing and they were getting Mm. quite good. So what period is that starting to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that happened before and after the First World War. And the research we did, we found an awful lot of scorecards and records where Spanish speaking players with Spanish surnames or not just Spanish surnames, but because Argentina is a country of immigration from all over Europe. But, you know, non-English surnames, people scoring centuries and and taking fifers, you know, and if they were scoring centuries, then that's a pretty good yardstick because these were low scoring times. You know, this wasn't the plum wickets you get today if you forgive the Plum Warner reference. (laughs) So yeah, cricket wasn't just played in the members clubs at that time. It was played by railway teams. It was played by schools. It was played by other clubs. And it clearly had a foothold at that point among people who weren't just English speakers who'd come over and settled in Buenos Aires to make money. So there's no doubt it was there. You know, there was an amazing source we found, which was the first rule book, the first law book of cricket translated into Spanish or written in Spanish. And it had all the fielding positions and all the all the shots translated into Spanish. And some of those phrases have survived and other ones have completely fallen by the wayside. But that was a wonderful sort of breakthrough moment when we found that book and we realised how strong cricket was. And also another indicator is a lot of the mainstream Spanish press and magazines were covering cricket in you know long syndicated articles from the cricketer translated into Spanish or even Spanish writers writing their own cricket reports, which sometimes caused amusement among the snooty Brits who took the mickey out the way they wrote about the game. 
Well, let's talk about the snooty Brits for a minute, because there has to be an element of this here. You talk about, I think it was the Hurlingdon Club that had a very strict membership, mm. which was, well, it was aimed to keep locals out, <laughs> from yeah. what I can tell, as much as anything. It was aimed to keep yeah. those clubs rich, elite, and British, let's say. Mm. Was that how cricket was? I mean, you talked about rugby being middle class, a game, mm. uh, you know, up until the 90s there too. So was cricket just worse or more efficient at being classist and racist? <laughs> That's a great question. I think all the clubs to a degree would have been a bit guilty of this. I think that they probably just assumed that cricket was an English game. You know, I found sources where respected cricketing figures in Argentina were saying the Latin temperament isn't suited to cricket or that it's too difficult for them to play. That it's too hard for them to find a place to play. I've found articles on Sri Lanka cricket from very early on that said a similar thing, by the way. Well, there you go. Exactly they seem to right. go okay. <laughs> exactly. So they got that wrong. And there were other articles that saying it's the physical aspect of, of football and rugby that appealed to the lower classes, if you could say that. So they had all sorts of theories about this. I think it's only fair to say that some people were rueful about the, the fact that cricket hadn't spread outside these clubs. Mm. There were people saying, look, we wish... Argentines were playing. I mean, the problem is that not enough people made enough of an effort to make it so. Mm. I think what a lot of them were doing was trying to create an oasis of Englishness in a foreign climate. You know, a lot of the articles you read from the time are, isn't it wonderful that we have this corner of England where we've created this wonderful club and this wonderful environment? And probably not enough of that was relevant to local people who might wanted to have taken up the game. And I'm sure that did put people off. I talked before, you know, having been to the Kowloon Cricket Club and the Hong Kong Cricket Club, there's still a definite element of that there, like, and mm. that's now. So you can only assume what it was like back in those days when the world wasn't as global. My guess is, in general, that cricket it just isn't as naturally open when it comes to other players and that. So if the um, locals didn't pick it up themselves the way that they may have with football, for instance, mm. it was always going to be a little bit more closed doors, if you know what I mean. Mm. But it, it's a huge shame. So the, the next big tour, was was Plum Warner in charge of the, the following MCC tour? He was Plum Warner, who had been on the selection panel in 1926 in England, and he got booted off that. Can I just stop you for one second? Is it possible that cricket didn't get big in Argentina just because you sent Lord <laughs> Hawke and then Plum Warner? I'm just putting well, that out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, poor old Plum, he gets a terrible press. I mean, I actually got a bit of a soft spot for him in some ways. I mean, if you separate the body line stuff, he did an awful lot for cricket around the world. And actually, Lord Hawke did a probably Lord Hawke for his own reasons a bit more. But Plum Warner seems to have genuinely cared about cricket in all countries. The Cricketer magazine, and I've got a slight interest in this as I've worked for the Cricketer, but the, during that period, you know, global cricket was a massive thing. Scorecards sent in from all around the world, from Argentina. There was massive coverage of Argentine cricket in the Cricketer magazine. So I think he would have seen that and realised how fertile the grounding was to go and take a tour there. I think he got kicked off the selection panel, and I, my theory is this might have been a bit of a bumping him down. Oh, go on, you've been kicked off, but here you go. You go with your mates down to South America and play. And it's an amazing touring party. You know, there's three future England test captains in that party. There's Lord Dunglass, who would be Alec Douglas Hume, the future British Prime Minister. And he had a terrible tour where he was ill the whole time. Warner shoved him in at short leg without helmets or shin pads on as <laughs> they have these days. He had a bit of a shocker. If he'd known he was going to be his Prime Minister in a few years' time, maybe he wouldn't have done that. But yeah, I mean, that was an amazing tour because Argentina had won a test again against the MCC, an unofficial test, we have to say. And Warner was so sort of irked by the fact that they were 1-1 after three tests that he strong-armed the organiser of the tour 
a guy called EWS Thompson. He made him fit in an extra test match and change the schedule so they could have an extra Argentina against MCC game, which lo and behold, MCC won. <laughs> Take that, BCCI. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how yeah, you well, do the, it. <laughs> exactly right. Well, it's just it's, it's incredibly how history repeats itself as fast, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, that was probably Argentina at their strongest at that point. They had an amazingly strong team. Were there Latin Spanish speakers in that team or was that... There were some with, I think, with mixed parentage in that side. Yeah. I don't think any out-and-out Latin Argentines and those Spanish-speaking Argentines in that side. But funny enough, the, the local English-language newspaper called the Buenos Aires Herald ran a competition to guess the scorer and the score of the first 100. And it was an Argentine guy that scored the first 100, which was, I think was probably a surprise to most people. So they landed a few blows in that series as well. But Warner did get to go home crowing with a, with a series victory. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we beat them. We beat Argentina. I know, I know. You won't believe the stories I have. <laughs> well, there were some good stories actually. There was a guy called Jerry Wagle who was 56 on that tour, so he was going on a bit. And he went down to breakfast by, by the pool, stripped off to his open chest, and scared all the local um, women away with his sort of shouting virility, virility to all of them. So, bit of an interesting character. And he got chucked out of the jockey club of Buenos Aires as well for, for droning on too long. So, yeah, some interesting stories from that tour. And what year was that one? That was 1926-27, so just before Warner's sort of the most famous thing we know about Warner, which is obviously Bodyline. But yeah, so 26-27, and the ICC was well up and running by that point. And that was pretty much the apex of Argentine cricket. And if only the ICC rules had been different, I think they could have pressed for higher recognition at the ICC and more tours. Because yes, there were these tours coming from England, but... Another sort of sad aspect of this is there's, there's no real byplay between the West Indies and, and Argentina. You know, you think that that was the test nation or coming up to be the test nation in, in that part of the world. But there's next to no contact between West Indies cricket and Argentine cricket. Although, interestingly, Plum Warner, when they sailed through the Panama Canal on the way home, they did meet a bunch of West Indian cricketers in Panama. So he saw that aspect of it, but it never really works with between Argentina and the West Indies, which is a, a bizarre part of history. You, you'd think they'd be natural bedfellows. Yeah. And it's also, that's just such an interesting period because, you know, within the next five years, you're going to double the amount of test nations that we have. Exactly. Ireland and the USA had probably just slipped back a little bit with their play after both being very strong at various times. So it's possible at that point, if cricket was run with any sort of common sense, that going into the 1930s, we could have had seven, eight, nine test-playing nations. And also, that was a time when, you know, cricket was strong in South America and that the British hadn't suffered their sort of slight humiliation uh, when Perón comes to power, which is again in the book. And they sort of British influence retreats quite a lot during and after the Second World War. But at that time, that was very much the roaring 20s. It, it was the apex of their cricket and that was when they were at their strongest. And it is bizarre, especially when you have figures like Clem Gibson, who was a Wisdom Cricket of the Year in 1918, I think, and he was Argentina's best bowler. You know, he was very, very influential in, in English cricket. He was well known to all these guys and he was an influential voice for Argentine cricket. And yet they still had absolutely no, and you know, this is the era of the old boys club and you'd mm. think he would have had more of an ear at Lords, and he didn't really. So yeah, I mean, who knows what would have happened if the Second World War hadn't happened and a lot of Argentines, uh, Anglo-Argentines volunteered for the Allied forces. So who knows what would have happened then, but they hadn't done enough to encourage the local population at that time as well. So is it as simple to say that when England's influence retreated, that the game just went with it? Is that the simplest way? Obviously it hasn't gone completely, you know, it, it still survives and it is still played passionately by people, but it never took on the scale of that it had before, between the wars and before that. I think part of the reason is that 
the British had such influence with business and they owned sports grounds. They owned sports grounds next to railway clubs, next to uh, meat factories. You know, so they had the wherewithal and the means to be able to run cricket as a leisure activity. And they lose that when the British influence retreats. And I think another difference between there and the actual British Empire is that, you know, it wasn't a garrison sport. It wasn't completely wedded into the civil service and the, and the way the countries were being run. This was a leisure and business colony that sort of exists away from the actual state. And while the state patronises it to a degree and they make friends with presidents of in Latin America, that doesn't work quite so well when you've got dictators saying we're going to rid our countries of capitalist Western influence. It doesn't quite work like that. And I think one lesson of history that you've probably seen as well, though you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is that cricket doesn't tend to do very well in totalitarian, authoritarian regimes. It tends to do better in sort of liberal democracies and countries that are open for business. Now you're going to get me thinking about That's very, very interesting. I've probably given you a story there, haven't I? Given you, a, given you an article. <laughs> I'm trying to work out if that... I mean, the Taliban is the one I'm thinking about, which is the most confusing, because the Taliban were both pro and anti-cricket at the same time, depending on what part of Afghanistan you happen yeah, yeah. to be in at that time. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean you're right. Cuba is the most interesting one with that. The history mm. of cricket in Cuba is actually very fascinating. But don't worry, I won't throw to that too much <laughs> to you. Avita is in the title of your book. I mean, you mentioned it briefly there, but talk me through what the sort of impact of Avita was on cricket. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So basically, it's not just her, it's the regime as a whole in yeah. that they come in and uh, Juan Perón is elected in 1946. And he comes in on a ticket saying, I'm going to rebalance the economy. Because bear in mind that in the 1890s, extraordinary fact that I didn't know before embarking on this book, at the turn of the century, Argentina was the richest country in the world in terms of GDP, which tells you how rich certain people were. There were a lot of people that weren't rich at all. So he comes in saying, we've got this agricultural powerhouse, this industrial powerhouse. We're going to rebalance the economy away from the sort of people that were playing cricket, basically. So Evita, who is his, obviously his glamorous wife, and I'm sure most people who listen to this podcast will have seen the film and so on, she starts her own social aid foundation, which involves, among other things, asking companies for money. They ask the Buenos Aires Cricket Club for the field so they can hold a social aid foundation. And the Buenos Aires Cricket Club says, no, we don't want our field torn up by locals, thank you very much. We've been playing cricket here since the 1860s. We don't want the field ruined. And to cut a long story short, a few weeks later, the Buenos Aires Cricket Club pavilion is in flames. And that's right in the centre of town, actually, in the old, lovely Palermo Gardens, another great place to go in Buenos Aires. And so that was pretty much right under the, the gaze of ordinary people when they would have walked through the gardens on a, on a Saturday or Sunday. And funny enough, cricket was played in Argentina on Sundays, way before it was in England. So, yeah, I mean, it loses that visibility in the centre of town. And that was one of the ways in which cricket and the people that played it started to be clamped down on by Evita. I mean, you know, there's never an outright ban or anything. It's no. not as if cricket is banned. But it's just the country changes and the glory days for the Brits where they could pretty much do what they want is over, basically. If you go through, and I'm kind of putting this together now, like you brought up with, with your political point a minute ago, but if you go through it, Ireland, you could argue Scotland to a certain point, but Ireland, America and Argentina, cricket died essentially because cricket was seen as the most English sport. You know, in Ireland and America, they just invented their own sports, didn't they? Whereas Argentina yeah. actually kind of took an English sport, made it their own sport and went off with it. So it is quite interesting yeah, yeah. that for whatever reason, cricket has always been like a step above. Like the, the only other one you would put even further above it would be polo, which is linked to cricket <laughs> in Argentina as well. But it seems that once there is this huge anti-English sentiment, unless cricket's already massive, like it was in, you know, India, for instance, it mm. seems that there's going to be a huge problem there. And, and that seems to be 
basically what happened with their cricket. Yeah, pretty much. And it's not just in Argentina. It's in, it, as the rest of Latin America changes as well, and, and they ha- start having their own different regimes and, and, and so on, the same thing happens. I think they haven't changed the the, me- the mentality of, of the game. They haven't changed the outlook of the game. You know, it, it's galling when you think about it. I mean, no offence to people who play hockey, but it's galling that, that hockey is so big in Argentina. And to be fair, it's very popular among women, but it's galling that that's so big and cricket isn't. Mm. So yeah, Sorry it's... to all the hockey listeners, all seven of you that have come over. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Just a final question. I used to know this, but I haven't been following them recently. Where are they currently ranked on the men's global uh, rankings as far as uh, teams go? I reckon when I was writing my book, so when was that, about 2014, 2015, I thought they were ranked about fifth division or something. They were a long, long way back at that point. Argentina, actually, and this is a great little point, actually. They, I think they had something like a 25-game losing streak in the World Cricket League. They've gone from being a mainstay of the ICC trophy, apart from the one where they had to withdraw because of the Falklands War, which is another story in itself. They've gone from being a mainstay of the ICC trophy to then when the World Cricket League comes in, losing game after game after game against teams from the Middle East or whoever who had all these Indian or Pakistani immigrants who were you suddenly... Cayman Islands beat them in your book, didn't they? Well, that's right. Cayman Islands beat them in the book, a tiny tax haven in the Caribbean. How do you get beaten by a tax loophole? <laughs> well, exactly. Well, aren't the ICC based in a, t- a tax haven? Anyway, let's not go there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, they went on a terrible losing streak. Although, you know, if you were basing it in terms of the ICC financial scorecard, they've always been quite high in terms of production of local players. The guys that were playing for Argentina at that point, they're all Argentines that have lived there for generations and generations. But in terms of the win-loss ledger, it wasn't going very well. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the whole T20 international global landscape looks, because now that that's come in for all associate nations, that's going to be the ladder for countries to climb up. And Argentina, which is one of the more traditional associate members who always base their game on Red Bull cricket and they play two-day cricket for a long time. And this is possibly why it didn't catch on. I don't It's one of the reasons. They've had to sort of adapt their game to the new realities of, of T20. And, you know, especially with women's cricket, you know, Argentina and Brazil are doing some pretty good things. So I think we'll see if the ICC can, can raise the money. And that's part of the problem. They haven't had qualification tournaments for women's tournaments in the Americas. But if they can bring in a system where, you know, the likes of Argentina and Brazil can go on and play in America's qualifiers, I think they'll continue to to climb up slowly. But the reality is that, you know, these are not countries with, with massive immigration from India, which, as we know, is the global powerhouse of cricket in terms of players coming into associate countries and powering their... And then you, you did a podcast on that recently. And they don't have that in Argentina and Brazil to a huge degree. So it's going to have to come from within. It's going to have to come from local development. And I think Argentina are finally getting their head around that now because they have this uh, scheme called Cricket Sin Fronteras, which is going into local barrios where there are poorer kids, and sometimes not even Argentine. Sometimes they're from Paraguay or immigrants from Paraguay or something. And this was something sponsored by the Catholic Church, including Pope Francis, before he was Pope Francis. So they're going in there and trying to find cricketers from poorer backgrounds. And this is pretty much breaking that cycle of just being a middle class members club sport. And they're finally getting their heads around that. You mentioned Brazil uh, briefly there. Brazil obviously made their women professional. I know this is a weird question, but if Brazil get a little bit good at cricket, does that help? Does that mean that there's someone to beat? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. No, there's, there's already a rivalry, a massive rivalry between Argentina and Brazil women's teams in particular. Awesome. You know, they've been going toe-to-toe. Exactly. And who doesn't like Argentina being Brazil? Even the colour schemes are brilliant, aren't they? The blue against the yellow. But yeah, I mean, so that's already massive in women's cricket in particular. And those teams absolutely are full of Argentines and Brazilians who perhaps didn't know the game from their parents and they learned it from scratch. So 
I think Brazil being such a cultural draw for people, and it's no surprise that, you know, the cover of our book is yellow and green. You know, it's a map of Latin America, but it's yellow and green because Brazil is such a draw. It's such a cultural reference point for people for sport. If Brazil get good at cricket, that does make a massive difference. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right about that. And it does give Argentina that classic rivalry between the two, which we know from football as well. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Sports Social Podcast Network.